Hey. Good to see all of you. So good. My name is Ron, and I'm a joyfully recovered alcoholic member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I say, I say joyfully recovered purposely. Dr. Silkworth said the first hundred appear to have recovered. And I, ha I have recovered from this disease. Not from the disease, but from the state that I was in while I was drinking. For me, it's the equivalent of being in a, in a, in a shipwreck. And I'm off of that shipwreck. I'm off of the shipwreck. So I'm no longer there. Through the grace of God, I've been, I've been removed from that position. My recovery, continuous recovery, is dependent on doing what I've been taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. So in order to stay recovered, I have to practice a program of recovery. And the program of recovery means that I have to... I, I've been given the gift. I've been given the gift of sobriety. That's not something I could give myself. That's something to the grace of God that I was afforded. And what I've received because of that is something I never want to give up again. And what I have to do is something not that I have to do, but that I want to do. I've been able to understand that I am not just my ego. That's how I grew up. I was my ego. See, for me, there, there's, there's levels of, of, of consciousness and there's levels of awareness and there's levels of, of, of life. And, and the way I grew up, and I'm going I'm to tell you all about that in a minute. The way I grew up, all I knew was about reaction. I didn't know that I had a choice. For me, life happened to me. And there was nothing that I could do about it except to react to whatever happened. So I grew up, I was born and raised in a religious cult. And that was my first introduction to God. Worse than that, I was told how to think, what to think, how to behave, where to go, when to go. I didn't know who the hell I was. Had no clue. I didn't even know that it was possible for me to figure out who I was. Because that wasn't allowed. That wasn't allowed. Very strict. We went to church five nights a week. Saturday morning and all day on Sunday. We had no TV, no radio, no record players. Couldn't join teams, couldn't join unions. Couldn't eat with anybody that wasn't in this, in this cult. So, we didn't live in a commune, but our minds were not our own. Not even slightly. Not even slightly. There, there, weren't, there weren't, like, people that walked around checking on people. But believe you me, the only way we got to feel good about who we were was to make somebody else wrong in this cult. So I learned how to be observant of other people's failings. I learned how to be judgmental. And I learned that my behavior was sanctioned by the God that we had in this church. And I learned that this church had the only God that there was. Nobody else had God except for us. It sounds funny now, but I'm going to tell you what. When you're raised with that, that's truth.
That's the truth. I got to feel bad for everybody else because you're all going to hell. <laughs> you know, we were not going to hell. As long as we did what this leader said to do, we were not going to hell. And somehow, and I still don't understand how this was going to be us and a handful of Jews. <laughs> they never explained that part to me. <laughs> never explained it to me. I, I, I would wonder about that. Okay, us, 30,000 of us around the world and a handful of Jews. I, I, still, I, I still can't wrap my head around, but you know what? I'm sober and I don't have to. I don't have to try and think, I don't have to try and figure that out because that was my modus operandi. I, I, I had to figure out everything, you know. So this, this church started out in Ireland in the late 1800s. It was an offshoot of Catholicism. The guy that broke away from the Catholic Church did so because he didn't believe that man needed to go to a man to get to God. The concept was true. I have a personal relationship with a God in my understanding. I don't have to go to a man to get there. So what he, what he had in mind was good. But what I've learned since I've been out of there is that what happens, you can, you can change a thought, but if you don't change the thinking process, you're going to do the same thing anyway. And sure enough, this man became the de facto pope. And then his successor became the de facto pope. And so now we're in this thing. I came in, I was born in 1954. In the, in the early 50s, the last guy from that whole regime, Jim Teller Jr., he was a charismatic Irishman. The kind of guy that if he said jump, you'd say, how long do you want me to stay in the air? You know? And so what he did, you know, it happened, it happened kind of like the lobster in the pot. You know, the water's cold and then it starts getting hot and the lobster doesn't know until it's too late. So my father... And the rest of these people, the adults in this cult, he, they just did whatever he said to do. Because he was God's voice on earth. We had no way of checking the validity of that statement. You know, what we knew is that he would say things, and because he said them, it was true. So in 1960, when I was six years old, he decreed that we could no longer have anything to do with relatives that weren't in this cult. The whole, the whole side of my father's family, grandmother, grandfather, cousins, uncles, everybody, gone. Just gone. I've, I've, seen, I've seen my aunts uh, in the last few years, and, and uh, they're still hurt because my father turned his back and walked away from them. 1964, college was outlawed. If you didn't get to college before 64, excuse me, you, 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 just, you just couldn't go, you know, that, that, that was it, you know, and so there's a bunch of people in there who got to go to college and became doctors and this and that, and the rest of us had to figure out how we're going to do with our hands because no college, you know, so uh, when I was in school, I, um, I got to tell you, my second grade report card, I remember it proudly to this day, Ron Edwards, has tremendous potential, but refuses to apply himself. <laughs> yes. You know. And so what I found out afterwards was that if something interests me, then I would apply myself. So I'm the president and CEO of a small corporation without college. So I found something that I could apply myself to, something that interested me. 
we, we um, gosh, man, in 19, 1970, this Jim Taylor Jr. dude was found in Scotland in bed with another man's wife, unclothed, both of them. So she was a nurse, and the story that was given out was that she was giving him a massage. <laughs> you know, no, but half the church left. My father chose to stay. He chose to stay, so as his son, I stayed with him because you didn't leave. You didn't leave. My father was the head of the house. There was James Taylor Jr., and then there was all the men underneath him. Women had no rights in this thing. None. And then, then there were the sons. And that's what I grew up with. You know, and, and uh, you talk about respect. How could I have respect for myself? How could I have respect for anybody else? when I didn't learn how to do that growing up. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. One time, my mother, my, fa- my, my father <laughs> had, this, had this habit of, and I tried to not do this to my son, just going on and on and on and on, and Catherine's laughing, on and on, you know, this will leave something alone, you know. I later found out that my grandfather, on my father's side, he, he was, my, my, my aunt told me, you know, nowadays they would say he was probably mentally disturbed because he would do that. So it's in the family. So uh, I just thank God for this program, Alcoholics Anonymous, because I can make amends if I do something like that. And sometimes hungry, angry, lonely, tired, that part of my ego just, just comes out. So my father... Followed my mother down the steps. I was about 17. And he's going on and on and on and God and this and God that and you and sin and blah, blah, blah. And my mother's like, and just like did like this. And he said, did you know you just waved your hand in the face of God? I got ready to knock, the, knock him out because I thought he was going to hit my mother. You know, he was, he was so furious that she would wave his hand like that. We're, we're from the West Indies. And that is like the ultimate disrespect. It's like, you don't mean anything. So she really wasn't supposed to do that. So... But she did it. She did it. She did it, you know. And um, that's the kind of house I grew up in. That's the kind of house I grew up in. Um, we, the only thing James Taylor Jr. did besides this whole thing with, with, uh, the, with the cult and, and, and all that and God and Jesus and blah, 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 was drink. We could drink. <laughs> we could drink. So James Taylor Jr., his idea of a drink was an eight-ounce glass filled one inch to the top with one ice cube and a little water. And because he drank that way, that's the way all the men in the church were supposed to drink. Because if he did that, that meant that God ordained it. We had no idea he was an alcoholic. Because <laughs> we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about that. You know, so one day... Uh, we, we had these, these three-day meeting things, and, and uh, I, I wanted to go someplace with a bunch of kids from, from Canada that, that, that had come down on the bus, and they, they, the, the, the Canadian kids were kind of wild. And we, we, the rumor was that they were smoking hash and shit, and you know, we weren't supposed to do that at all. So I, I wanted to go hang out with them and just see what this was all about. My father wouldn't let me go. However, I could go to my brother's house. So I went to my brother's house. And where everybody was drinking, there's a lot of people in there. My brother had a piano. I grew up with pianos. He had a piano that had these, these legs on it, right? Oak, oak legs. And um, 
I went into the kitchen, and there's rum, there's scotch, there's bourbon, there's gin, and there's, you know, fix, oh, and there's wine, wine too. And um, I went into the kitchen, I, I guess I was just upset that I couldn't go with these kids, so I decided to make myself a drink. I made a drink of Italian half and half Swiss colony and gin in an eight-ounce glass. The last thing I remember is this English dude who was over from England saying, Ron, I don't really think that's a good idea. <laughs> so I made my way into the living room where the piano was. And I'm laying down on my back on the floor and I'm running my hands up and down the piano legs. <laughs> and in my drunken stupor, I suddenly realized it was very quiet. And I opened my eyes and there I am, running my hands up and down poor Myrtle Dreaver's legs. <laughs> she was a spinster from someplace in North Dakota or something. And she's just grinning, and I'm just like... <laughs> I thought it was the piano legs, man. You know? So, so I, I, I got up and staggered into the bathroom and, and did this thing that alcoholics are so fond of doing when they had too much. Tried to throw up and shit at the same time. <laughs> That didn't work very well either. I ended up in the, in the, in the, in the bathtub with my brother and, and my friend, Johnny Wally, you know, like washing me down and, and, and putting on somebody else's clothes and taking me home. And Johnny and I were sleeping in the basement of the house that I grew up in. I woke up the next morning and I had no memory, nothing at all. I, didn't even, I, didn't, I don't even think I reeked of alcohol, but I don't really know. But I do know I went upstairs and my mom had these beautiful, big brown eyes, and I could tell by her eyes something had happened. And she said, Ron, your father wants to talk to you. I said, what? She said, you don't know what I said. No, what, what happened? So she told me. That was my first blackout. That was my first blackout. And um, I didn't know it was a blackout. I just know I didn't remember what happened. But I didn't know that was technically a blackout. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really know what to call it. And, and uh, my drinking didn't back down from there. I, um, I remember uh, we had these big three-day meetings, and, and I remember that, that one time that uh, my father had all this booze in, in, in the basement, and, and uh, Jack, my, my brother-in-law, was downstairs playing ping-pong, and my, my mother called us up, and Jack said, Ron, let's go in here. He went into this room, and there's all this whiskey. He said, just, just take a shot. So I took a shot of this whiskey. And I felt this thing go all the way down to my toes. All the way down to my toes. It was the first time I'd experienced that. All the way down to my toes. We had dinner, and as soon as dinner was over, I went back down there. Because I wanted that again. I was going to chase that all the way down to my toes feeling. You know, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't get that again. But I, do, I did know that that's where it came from. It came from that bottle, and that if I wanted to do it again, that's what I had to do. I had to go back to that bottle. I had no idea that this was the beginning of a path of alcoholism, that this was the way I was going to handle any problem that I had, and I had a lot of problems. I had a lot of problems. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. I had to be told what to do. I was given my first wife, you know, I was told, this is who you're going to marry, you know, and, and uh, yeah, well, no, she was cute, but, but and she was from Barbados, you know, so imagine marrying a Bayesian woman, you know, and it was like, wow, this is, you know, this is cool, this is cool, 
But I had no idea how to be a husband. I had no idea how to be a husband. I did all the shopping. I bought her clothes. She didn't need a driver's license because I could take her wherever she wanted to go. My mother could take her if she, if she needed to go someplace and I couldn't take her. So I kept her, in, I kept her captive because that's what I learned how to do in this cult. That's what she did. One of the leaders told my brother one time, what you do, you get your thumb on the neck of your wife and you keep it there until she's almost gone crazy and then let up a little bit. That's how you keep women subject. That's what you do. So I didn't know how to do that, but I, I knew how to do tricks because that's what I learned with my father. You know, um, he, he, would, he, he would say something like, Ron, you have something you want to tell me? I go, oh shit, what does he know? <laughs> so I, I would start going from the least thing that I could think of, you know, and, and, and he, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was very sadistic, you know. He, I mean, when he, when he you know, if we, if, we, if we misbehave, he'd break out with the belt. After We'd sit down and have dinner, and he'd be laughing and talking and having dinner, and then when dinner was over, he'd sit back and take his belt off. Okay, Ron, would you like three lashes or five lashes? If I said three, sometimes I'd get five. If I said five, sometimes I'd get three. So I never knew. And along with that, I never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in. So I learned how to watch. I learned how to watch. I learned how to temper my behavior based on how he looked. I learned how to go by my feelings around what he was doing and got further away from the possibility of even ever knowing who I was, what I was, and why I was here. That's how I grew up. So I got married. I got married, and uh, my father had his own business, and my older brother had his own business, and I knew I was going to have my own business, and so I did. I started a business. I ended up um, having a wood finishing business in, in, in New York, and, and I, uh, I got a contract to do the St. Regis Sheraton Hotel, which is like this fancy hotel on 5th Avenue and 55th Street in Manhattan. In that hotel... I was doing so many rooms on so many floors that I got permission to go up and down on the passenger elevator rather than use the service elevator. I met Salvador Dali on the elevator going up and down there. I had my little touch-up brush in my hand. He got on the elevator with his little mutton stop mustache, you know, and he's like, do you paint? And I'm like, no, I, I touch up furniture. He said, oh, and turned his back and wouldn't talk to me all the way down. You know? I said to the resident manager at that hotel, Anytime you and your wife want to go out for dinner, let me know where you go and I'll take care of the bill. Now remember that we're taught we're bad people trying not to become worse. So he said, Ron, all I need you to do is keep doing the same good job you've been doing. That's it. Two things happened to me. This is in 1979. One, I realized that Jay Litt had just done something good. And two, if I'm so bad, how could I recognize goodness? Everything that I was taught suddenly became untrue. I could no longer go back to those meetings. I did not have any moral fiber. I had no courage. I couldn't go and tell you, you know what? What you guys are saying is bullshit. I couldn't do that because I was going to go to hell if I did that. So I said nothing. I said nothing. I allowed them to take my family from me. They excommunicated me and they took my family and I thought they had the right to do that. I tried to get back in there and they wouldn't let me back in. They kept telling me, just get right. 
Ron, just get right. Just get right and come in. But they never told me what I needed to do to get right. Never told me. Thank God they never told me. Because I wouldn't be standing here if they did. So, one day, uh, I guess my wife was pregnant with our, with our third child. And my father wasn't supposed to do this. But he called and told me, Andrew J., 9 pounds, 7 ounces, Caledonia Hospital. So, I called Bruce Coulter. Uh... He was the local leader. and said, Bruce, I want to go to the hospital and see my, see my son. He said, you can't. I said, well, because if you go see him, you might contaminate him. So you cannot go see him. I did not see my son until he was 23. Yeah. So, I guess three months after that, I, still, I didn't know where my wife and, and family was. I didn't know that they, they had been shipped to Connecticut and were living with my brother and his, and his family. Three months after that, I guess it was in November, and, and this is as dramatic as it really was. This, I had this contract with this hotel, and I would take the train in rather than drive my truck. And I'm walking down the street, and honest to God, the leaves on the ground are crackling underfoot as I'm walking. There was a moon in, in the sky, and, and the clouds were scudding across the moon, and it, it felt surreal. And I knew something was wrong. I got to my house, and it felt dead. And I opened the front door, and I looked, and there's the china cabinet. All the china is gone. There is the uh, ironing board that I'd used that morning. The ironing board was there, the iron was gone. I looked to the right, and there are the cabinets with all the ordinary cutlery and dishes and cups and all that, rifled through. There's the washing machine is no longer there. I go downstairs, the dryer is gone. I come upstairs, I go into the kid's bedroom, all the bedding is gone and the clothing is gone from the closet. I go into our bedroom. Hazel stuff, my ex-wife's stuff is gone from the dresser. And I look, and the, 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 the attic steps that, that, that just come down, they're down. And I went up in the attic, and all of the winter stuff was gone. And I knew they were never going to let me back. I cursed God at the top of my lungs. I come down those steps and I said, fuck you, God. I'm never going to feel again. Never going to feel again. If you can do this to me, I'm done. Fuck you. And I started a life. If I'm going to hell, in for a penny, in for a pound. What is cocaine? What is cocaine? What is an after-hours club? What are bars? What do people do? I still had no way of knowing how you people lived because I had no frame of reference. Nothing. So I had to pretend. And I was really good at pretending. Really good at pretending. So, and I, you know, I, I say this in meetings all the time, and, and you know, this is me. Thank God for cocaine. Because cocaine allowed me to have an out-of-balance balance. Because if I didn't have it, I would have gone completely Berserk. I would have killed myself or somebody else. Cocaine made everything okay. Until it stopped working. Because I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. But for, for a while, it helped. I, um, I had a little, little altercation with uh, the New York chapter, the Hells Angels. And uh, yeah, I won't, won't tell you the whole story. Anyway, they thought I sold them some bad drugs or something. It wasn't me. But uh, I... Uh, <laughs> No, 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 seriously, it wasn't me. It really wasn't me. It was not me. You know, some other black dude, it was not me. I would, I would, not, I would not do that, you know. And so, so uh, every time I heard a motorcycle, I'd like shit my pants. 
because I didn't know if they were looking for me. They, they took me out of this after hours club. And, and the, well, I was in the after hours club and, and I was talking to the, to, the, to the bouncer and this guy was having a conversation. So this guy carried a, 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 a whip with a, with a, lead, a lead handle, right? He's like, oh, my, my, sorry guys, my street, street name was Silver. He's like, Silver, shut up. I said, what? I'm just talking about Silver, shut up. I said, what? And he said, pow! Hit me in my face, right? Knocked my glasses off. And he went outside. And so I started to go outside, and the bouncer said, Silver, don't go out, don't, don't go out there. And I said, hey, man, why is it? Pow! Hit me again. And he just like hit me four, five, six times. Grabbed my shirt, said, come inside. Took me inside in the back. Made me take off my boots. Give him all the money and all the drugs I had. And he said, you're lucky to be alive. Now get the fuck out of here, Silver. A week after that, I joined the Marine Corps. My plan, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 why not? My plan, I had, I had two major resentments, this fucking cult and the Hell's Angels. I'm going to learn how to kill. I'm going to come back to New York. I'm going to have an M1, uh, M16A1. I'm going to get some grenades. I'm going to take care of everybody. See, in this cult, they had this underground thing. I was going to come up under the underground thing, pop you in the and just kill everybody. You know, and then tell the judge, yeah, well, you know, they, they, this is what they did to me, so I had to do this. And the hell's angel is going to take care of them too. Thank God that didn't work. I did really well in the Marine Corps. I did really well. I got out of the Marine Corps. I uh, got out of boot camp. I was a, a private first class. So I got promoted in boot camp. And I was 27. And that was really old. That was like the cutoff, cutoff age for the Marine Corps. So, but they, 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 you know, they, they, they let me in. And this is how my higher power works. Because I had no idea I had a higher power. But if I had stayed in New York, I would have been dead. If they hadn't let me in, I would have been dead. I had no other options that I could work out myself. None. Is the Marine Corps are dead. So I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the whole physicality of it, you know, and it's, 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 it's helped me to this day. I, I decided, after I got through boot camp, I went back to New York, and, and uh, I thought, you know, I really don't want to kill anybody. So I, I, uh, I found out that these, these organizations that help, help people, military people that go AWOL and, and help you hide and all this, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. But I even had an even better idea. I didn't want to start my wood finishing business up again, but I knew what I could do. I could sell cocaine. So if I bought a gram of cocaine and cut it in half, I could sell half of it, I could use half of it, and I could make some money and, you know, $100 a day, and, yeah, you know, I could have, like, $2,000 a week, and I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an addict. I don't even need to tell you where that went, okay? <laughs> it went nowhere. It went nowhere. It was not going to happen. But, you know, my thinking... My thinking was just gone. I actually realized that I'd become functionally insane. Once they took my family, I became functionally insane. I met my second wife while I was in that state. And, and she, she, she hated my father. She hated the cult. She would see me weeping and crying. And she'd say, let's, let's, oh, they, we even had a plan to see if I could kidnap my kids. So it, it didn't happen, thank God, because I was going to be incapable I did not know how to live. I did not know how to live. I give you all this background because what happened after that, uh, I got married and then uh, I, I didn't know how much baggage I was bringing with me at all. I didn't have any idea that I had baggage because I didn't know that people didn't live the way I lived. I thought everybody did this. 
I thought everybody would there. Everybody's going to hell, so why, why, be, why be nice? You're going to hell. You know, take what you can. I learned that you, you love to get. That's why you love. If you want something, you love and then you get what you want and then you move on. That's why I didn't know anything about giving to give. I learned about giving to get. That's, 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 you know, it, took me, it took me some time to, to uh, get, get to that place. So I ended up um, losing that marriage. I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps and, and getting stuck in, in, uh, in L.A. I had all my stuff stolen from me. And I lived on the street. I was homeless. And I still had uh, contacts in the furniture uh, uh, business. So I was able to get supplies and make enough money to get back to New York. But I was still lost. I was still lost. While I was in the Marine Corps, I got sent to AA because they thought I had a drinking problem because I kind of like put some cut marks on my arm. You know, I tried to convince them that it wasn't really that serious, and they, they just didn't. They just didn't buy it. I actually tried to talk them into believing that it wasn't that serious. I didn't have a problem. I had a huge problem, and like it says in the big book, alcohol is but a symptom, and we never addressed what was underneath. I didn't really get to address that till after. So I ended up um, getting out. My wife, who's Swedish, went back to Sweden with our daughter, and I stayed in New York. And again, with the drugs and the alcohol and the cocaine. Lots and lots and lots of drinking. I was, I was working as a, as a bouncer in a bar in New York. It was an Irish bar, and the guy that owned it was Italian, and I... Um, <laughs> This is in Far Rockaway, right? And so they're the townies, the ones that live there, and then there's the other, the other Irish kids, the ones that go away to college. And they don't like each other. And I spent my time in that bar convincing both those groups that neither group was bothering me. Because, Ronnie, if those fucks bother you, just, just let us know, we'll take care of it. And I had to walk around and tell everybody everything's cool. That's, that's what I did. And I descended further and further and further into this despair, into this. I was telling my daughter in Sweden these stories that weren't true. Lying, cheating, thieving, stealing. I couldn't face myself. And this is when cocaine and alcohol started turning against me. You know, but I didn't know what a solution was. And then this woman said, I want to take you to Crested Butte for your 32nd birthday. And that's how I got here. So, what happened for me, 27 years, because I had this whole list of things I was going to talk about, 27 years of my life was spent in this cult, with that kind of thinking. Four years in the Marine Corps, one year out, and then I come to Crested Butte. This is why I call Crested Butte my home, because this is the first place with normal people. I know people that probably don't consider themselves normal, but from where I came from... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, honestly, honestly, man. I mean, I, told, I, I, I got him sitting in the grub stick, right? And, uh, oh, man, I was so fucked up when I got here. I didn't even know how I got here. I know I got on the airplane. I don't know wh where I got on the airplane. Was it Albuquerque or Santa Fe? I know I got off the airplane. I don't know if it was Denver or Gunnison. I have no idea. I just remember going up the mountain and, 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 and seeing this beauty this beauty. And so I'm sitting, three days after that, I'm sitting in the grub stake. And this guy comes in and says, building a log cabin, need hands, six bucks. And I said, I'll do it. 
and he, he, he hired me to go with him. And so we're, 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 we're unloading these logs from the, for, this, for this log cabin. And we got finished doing that, and, and uh, he says, Ron, can you, can you work some more? I said, yeah, I can. So we left right there and walked about 30 yards up more into the woods, and there's a stream. He moves this rock, pulls out two six-packs. I'm three days out of New York here, you know, and I'm doing like this commercial, sitting here next to a stream, drinking beer, iced by the stream. Then he lights a doobie. And I'm like, wow, mama, I'm home. This is it, man. It doesn't get better than this. So I go back down to town, and I tell this woman that I'm not coming back, and she's very irate. So she went and got my, my guitar and a bag of clothes and threw them on the, on, on the, on the, on the curb. And this is how I got introduced to this kind of love that I never experienced before. The guys in that bar said, we've got to find Ron a place to live. Somebody said, I'm a forest firefighter, Ron, I'm going to be out on the line, you can have my house. I had his apartment all over the old Acme liquor store. And, and that, that's, where, that's the first place I lived. I had my first shop on Bellevue. And, and it just moved on from there. I got sober here. I got sober here. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't maintain it. I did not know that there was something else besides my ego. I knew I had a problem. I knew I had an alcohol and drug problem. But I did not know what it was that I needed to do. I couldn't really grasp what was necessary. That what was necessary was that I needed to have separation between me and my ego. And so time continued and I continued. I went back to Santa Fe. I met Catherine there, my wife. We have the same sobriety date, July 20th. 2004. We just celebrated a birthday. Ten years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I had never stopped searching because I knew there had to be something more powerful than me. I was very leery of the word God. Very leery of God in general. Very leery of men telling me what to believe and how to believe. I didn't, I didn't want any of that. So I had to keep searching anyway. And I kept searching and I, I, finally, I, finally, I finally I found Catherine and, and we started talking about things and, and I said, you know, Catherine, I can't have a relationship with secrets anymore. And she said, I agree. And so we have a relationship based on that, no secrets. And she's my best friend. She's my business partner. She's my wife and the mother of our son. And, you know, we just kept growing. In 2000, we got sober in 2004. In 2006, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I got that at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Do I blame the Marine Corps? No, I chose to join the Marine Corps. Yes, that was happening there. 2010, I had a traumatic brain injury. I was at an AA retreat. I'm like, God, what the hell? <laughs> I'm at an AA retreat driving this 80-year-old woman around in a golf cart, and I don't golf. And we were, we're having fun, you know. She's saying, if you don't see us in two hours, don't come looking for us. You know, and, 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 yeah, she is a sweet old woman. And so I'm driving around, and, and uh, we're on this path going up to, to, this is a ghost ranch, up to the, the, the cafeteria, old adobe brick wall, and the brakes failed. Ran into the wall, bam! Poor Kay got thrown out. She, she got thrown out, and she said, said, please tell Ron it's not his fault. I wept for days after that. She had gouge on her leg and hematoma on her skull. They took her to uh, Espanola Hospital, stitched her up. She had a hamburger and went back to Albuquerque. The woman that brought her took her back to Albuquerque. 
I sat there, I'd hold on to the steering wheel so tightly in the golf cart, I'm jamming the brake, jamming the brake, jamming the brake, and it's not stopping. It, it, it busted at the, at the base, the steering wheel, so I didn't hit my chest. Two weeks later, I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, and my doctor who was in the program prescribed morphine and Prozac for 20 days. Well, I've got to tell you, I, I don't know how people use morphine to get high because that shit's bad. It's just, you know, I, yeah, my, my poor son would come home from school, say, Dad, have you had a movement yet? You know, because it just, like, bunged me up, the morphine. It's so bad. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's like I'm 90 years old. Dad, have you had a movement? No. So, yeah. So, you know, he was, he was being solicitous, you know. I understand that. It was because it was very painful. I just couldn't do it. And my eyes turned blue from the morphine, grayish blue, from the, from the, from the Prozac. So, I stopped doing that after the 20 days was up. Um, I, you know, what was really interesting, just a, a quick aside, uh, we, had, we had kept our business going through all this stuff. And we'd actually done about a quarter million in sales in 2009. In 2010, by June, we had done about 200,000 in sales. And then I had a traumatic brain injury, and bam, it was done. I went to meetings. I had meetings brought to the house. I kept my program going. I stayed sober. I didn't want or didn't need alcohol. I was, that had been relieved. That had been removed from me. What I had to deal with was the, the whole emotional part. How, how do I deal with life under these circumstances? I wasn't bitter, but I was in so much pain. I would go to meetings in a wheelchair and tell people, I just want to cut my legs off at the hip, both of them. Without, you know, how stupid is that? What, 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 what am I going to do? <laughs> Be pushed around the rest of my life? You know, I just I couldn't even think that through. So I managed to heal from that, and then, then we, you know, we just kept moving, moving. Last year, we tried to come to this conference in 2006. We tried to come in 2008. We tried to come in 2010. We couldn't come until 2012, 2012, 2013. We had our last $1,000, period. The advertising specialties industry had, had kind of dried up for us. Our last $1,000, we came to Crested Butte. Got here, got to the conference, I'm walking up and down Elk Avenue, and people are like, Ron, welcome home, welcome home, Ron, where you been, you're going to play the piano again, welcome home. Never in my life have I gone anywhere and had that kind of welcome. How could they remember me? 27 years later, welcome home, Ron. My God. My God. So, three days, we decided we are going to move to Crested Butte, and we did. And it was the right place at the right time and for the right reasons. Our business flourished. We started another business. I started playing music again. Our son having a hard time in school, but he's, he's you know, middle school and that kind of thing happens. Catherine's getting adjusted to being in Crested Butte, but this place has filled me with so much love. I came here with a cane. and Within a week, I didn't have to use a cane anymore. I came here unable to, unable to work or do anything at all. I had to sleep half an hour, two hours, every afternoon in Santa Fe. All of a sudden, Cousin's like, well, I got my man back. You know, he's up till midnight and get up at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And yeah, life. Life is good, man. It's, it's just so good. I just, um, I just really, I, just, I, I, can't, I can't say how grateful I am to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of the things I learned listening to the voice of God is not some sonorous, deep, basso voice, but more a little nudge and impulse to do something. Sometimes it is an answer to a question in my own head that feels like it came from somewhere else. And that's how I know the voice of God is talking to me. Sometimes uh, I feel like, like um, uh, my, ego, my ego is well-versed 
in, in the level of, of, of uh, a le- level of consciousness that fear exists on. So it was able to, to guide me during that period of time when I didn't have a God of my understanding because that was my ego's job. My ego doesn't know anything about love at all. It can only mimic it, but I did not know that. I also, I also didn't know that when I'm connected to this one love, which is what my God is, that my life can be filled with joy, that I can be of service, that I can be useful, and I learned all that through A. My sponsor is from Arkansas. He's an ex-cop from L.A., Jerry Sickler. You know, I knew I could not bullshit this man. You know, <laughs> And that's what I wanted. I wanted a guy that I would have to be responsible to. I would have to be able to say, okay, this is what's going on, and he would tell me the truth. And I trust him. You know, I... I, I can't. I can't. I can't say. You know, anybody here from Arkansas? Right on. All right. <laughs> Little Rock, Arkansas. Jerry Sickley. Yeah. So um, just being connected. Uh, yeah, my life is pretty much an ongoing celebration of joy, and the things still happen, but I have tools to deal with it. I have tools that I never had before. I, I know how to be responsible. I know how to own my shit. You know what? My son has learned that from us. My son has learned that from us. And, and that alone is worth everything. So we'll see where life takes us. You know, we'll see where life takes me. But this I do know, that I am sober, that I am grateful, and that more days than not, I have joy. I love all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right.